Welcome to Mindful Movement with Naya, a podcast about all things mind-body connection. I'm Naya Kalmels, nationally certified Pilates teacher, yoga teacher, integrative movement specialist, and owner of Mindful Movement. This podcast is meant to educate, elevate, and inspire anyone interested in feeling and moving better. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to Mindful Movement with Naya podcast. We are here with Josh Madonic today, talking about his work as a physical therapist. Um, Josh has been a physical therapist and the founder of Basecamp PT in Petaluma, California. He's also my personal physical therapist. He is an avid trail runner and a certified strength and conditioning coach. He also um, works to help athletes not just rehabilitate from injury, but also find their peak. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. Heck yeah. I am very, very excited to be here. I feel like you and I can talk for hours. Uh, so disclaimer to the listeners that that is very possible to happen here. Absolutely. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. It's really just an excuse for me to get to talk more with you. We've had fascinating conversations about the way the body moves, about athletics, running a business in this industry. And I just learned recently that you're also a tinkerer. Um, so I, we have even more to discuss and you're working towards being the, uh, 100 year old badass that you are striving to, to, to achieve. So I hope that you can also help your clients make their way there as well. That is definitely the hope that is, uh, selfishly the reason I became a physical therapist in the first place was to try and figure out how to preserve myself for as long as possible. I love that. Well, tell us a little bit about that journey coming into physical therapy. Yeah, well. You know, the, I feel like I've told the story many times, never recorded, but essentially uh, I was a football player in high school and I was a mediocre one at best, we'll say. Uh, I am tall now. I was not tall then. I was not very strong. I definitely wasn't very fast. And so the foray into the exercise sciences and the physical sciences was really to try and figure out again, selfishly, how do I become a better football player? Because I want more playing time. I want to be a star, all the things that come with that. And so I, I kind of stumbled into the field of strength and conditioning, trying to figure some of those things out. I trained a lot of my classmates and, and former teammates, and all of them got significantly better. And I didn't, I maybe got like 1% better. Uh, but it was the first time that I really felt like it's very exciting and interesting. And, and I just wanted to know, like, why did they get better? Like, let's, let's dive deeper into that. That led me to study exercise science in, in school. And it just like, launched me into this life of uh, being fascinated with movement, with human movement, human performance, and really just trying to understand every aspect of it. Uh, and that has led me down more rabbit holes than I am uh, proud to share. But along the way, it's it's really helped me kind of establish and figure out how I like to treat what I want our company to be able to do. And, and basically like, what I think is most helpful for other athletes who are going through similar things, whether they're a high schooler trying to figure out how to get better at their sport, uh, whether they're maybe like a middle-aged runner or an older athlete who's just trying to stay in the game for as long as possible. Clearly, you have a lot of interest in this field. Is there anything in particular that keeps you inspired to keep going? You know, uh, it, it kind of ties into why I chose to be in this field in the first place. And it really comes down to every individual that I work with. Um, I joke around all the time with students who come in and shadow us at our clinic that I just love solving puzzles. 
And everybody who comes in is just a slightly different puzzle than the person who came in before them. And so as a result of that, it's like, I get to, I, I joke around, like I, I generally only see five or six patients a day and I get to basically have five or six of the world's best word problems every day. And like as a, as a high school student and a college student, I remember word problems being horrible and I never enjoyed them and they took so much thought. Uh, but now I've kind of found this like really sweet spot in life where I get to really just have somebody come in and, and say, this is what's going on. What do I do? And and being able to just try and think through those things to me is like the most exciting and, and entertaining thing that I can do on a, on a day-to-day basis. I love the way that you characterize the, the puzzles that you like to solve because my own experience with physical therapy as a patient, sometimes I've felt that um, there's been kind of a an approach where they're just looking at their region where I have a complaint or where I experience pain. And when we've worked together, you have blown my mind about how you have traced where everything is connected and really look at each individual more holistically. It's one of the things that I've appreciated about you since we started working together as colleagues and also as being one of your PT patients. Um, And then of course, coming from the world of Pilates, it just speaks to what I know to be true already. So um, I, I like the puzzle analogy very much. You are an athlete and a physical therapist. And I kind of, in the introduction, hit on it a little bit that you don't just work on rehabilitation, but you actually are really focused on helping people take where they might have found a weakness or a challenge in their bodies and help create a stronger, more holistic athlete. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, to me, I got introduced to this idea very early on, uh, right after I had really come out of undergrad and before I'd even started PT school. And I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of really, really good mentors, but one of them along the way kind of taught me that rehab and performance training are the same thing. They're on the same spectrum. They're just at slightly different points in that spectrum. And so the way that I've always looked at it is, you know, from a performance standpoint, we're generally trying to do one of two things. We're trying to take a strength and make it even more of a strength, or we're trying to take a weakness and make it less of a weakness. And so really what that, you know, when I focus on working with individuals, the goal is always to figure out, well, what is your goal? And then what's the main thing that's limiting you from being able to achieve that? Maybe you're fast, but you want to become faster. That's turning a strength into more of a strength. Or perhaps, you know, you had an ACL tear and that occurred because you don't have the ability to decelerate. But really your main overall goal is, hey, I want to just get better at my sport. Well, what it tells me is, well, if you can't decelerate, that's the reason that you injured yourself in the first place. Let's start working on that. And then if we can make you really, really effective at being able to do that, that's going to actually end up becoming a strength for you in the field or on the court or wherever it is that you're performing. But it's, I think what tends to happen in, in our world, in the physical therapy world is we become very focused uh, on pain as the number one outcome. And I'm not entirely sure when or why this has happened. And and maybe it has to do with insurance companies and and the way that our reimbursement model is set up in our field. But really what it comes down to is for some reason, people come to us because we're the pain people, you know, physical therapists, we just get taught, Hey, your goal is to get this person out of pain. And what I've learned in my practice uh, and early on, you know, I've kind of shifted my mindset between early on. It used to be, well, I'm going to, you know, kind of justify to myself that I'm, you know, I'm really good at this job because I can get somebody out of pain in in two sessions or three sessions or really, really quickly. But then what I started noticing is people would come back, you know, two, four, six, eight, 10 months later, sometimes years later, oh, the same thing's happening. And so that 
you know, being again, a tinkerer, it just kind of made me think, well, why aren't these people getting any better? Why aren't they maintaining if, you know, are they just not doing what I told them to do or what's going on? And really what it came down to is I didn't give them enough of a buffer to be able to have resilience to any future things that were happening. And so that's when it clicked in my head of, oh, you know, you have this performance background, the strength conditioning background. Why not try and use that and apply it at a much higher level uh, with these patients? And fortunately, in, in my practice, because we're not bound by uh, reimbursement models from insurance companies, we have the ability to take people as far as they want to go and really build that up. And so it's it's fun to me for, you know, when I get to tell people, hey, you're out of pain, but this is just like the beginning of the journey. This is really where like the fun stuff starts to happen. And going back to my own, you know, desire to be the badass hundred year old, everybody that we talk to generally, they want to keep doing whatever it is that they want to do for as long as possible at the highest level possible. And the only way to do that is to build up that reservoir now uh, so that they can take on and be prepared for all of these things down the road. I know that was like all over the, <laughs> all over the place. Hopefully I answered your question uh, and kind of got into, into the nitty gritty of it a little bit, but that's, that's the way my mind generally thinks about things. It's like every time we talk, you'll answer one question and it'll just spark four more questions. <laughs> so yeah, everything you said makes so much sense. And it's interesting because as a Pilates teacher, an integrative movement specialist, I often work with post PT patients and either they didn't get the care that they needed to be able to do the exercises properly or um, they just haven't progressed enough to meet their standard of living. And most of my clients tend to live very active lives, which is part of why we love working together. <laughs> um, and like you said, they, they're really wanting to go back to whatever passions they had, whether it's golf or tennis or running, um, cycling. So what you're saying makes sense. And our work together has actually really changed the way that I view physical therapy, because I always thought you go see a physical therapist when you have a problem that you can't fix yourself and you're in pain and don't want to deal with pain anymore. And so you've actually really reshaped the way I think about physical therapy. And for people who don't know what a strength and conditioning coach is, can you explain how kind of the certification and then also how is that different from your doctorate as a PT, as a physical therapist? And how is that different from a personal trainer just for folks who don't know how to navigate this, this industry? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a very uh, nuanced and detailed question, but I, first off, thank you. I mean, it's, it's awesome to hear that from people. And like, that's, that's, you know, going back to your previous question, that's one of the things that keeps me really excited and interested and engaged in the field is like kind of reshaping how people feel about it. I think this field has a tremendous amount of potential to make an impact on people's lives. And I think we've kind of fallen short of our duty as PTs. Um, but it's, you know, I think it's always like you want to leave the field a little bit better than, than you got it. Uh, and it's very humbling to hear that from you, that that's happened for you. So thank you for that. Back to your previous question. So the there's kind of like the technical answer to that, which is that there's different certification levels for all of these different, um, let's call them licenses or, or uh, professions. Personal trainer is generally going to be the lowest barrier to entry. Most times you can take a weekend course, you can get certified as a personal trainer through a variety of different organizations. A lot of the times these courses can be done online uh, and the test can be done online, open book. And so there's not a tremendous amount of let's say, uh, rigidity in the testing process. And it's it's fairly loose. Um, as a result of that, 
personal trainers do get a little bit worse rap than a lot of the other professions within the health and fitness world, uh, just because they have the least amount of training. And, and that's an okay thing. There's a tremendous amount of demand for personal trainers. And generally, you're trying to just have them have a baseline level of knowledge so that they can then learn moving forward. Strength and conditioning coach. So there's, a you know, you can, again, define that based on the certification that you receive. Uh, the certification I have is what's called a CSCS, done through a company called the NSCA. It's National Strength and Conditioning Association. Part of the reason I sought out that certification is because you have to have a bachelor's degree in an exercise science field in order to be able to sit for the exam. And so it's, again, it's just kind of like that next level up. And for me, coming out of undergrad, I wasn't sure where I wanted to take my, you know, my future field and, and my future practice. And so I wanted the, you know, legitimacy that a CSCS brings, because when you look at uh, a strength and conditioning coach who works with a collegiate team, let's say uh, here in the Bay Area, let's take a team like Cal or Stanford, their strength and conditioning coach on staff who works with their, you know, collegiate athletics or division one programs, they're generally going to have a CSCS. And so for me, it was like, okay, how do I kind of differentiate myself from maybe some of the other practitioners who are in that field, even though I never worked at the collegiate level to just demonstrate, Hey, this is the baseline level of understanding that I have. Um, and kind of priding myself on that. Now, in order to earn the degree in physical therapy, you have to go for three years of graduate schooling. Most times, some schools will offer it in two and a half. Some schools, it'll be a little bit longer program, but you have to sit for a licensure exam. So you have to earn what's called your doctorate of physical therapy, which is your technical diploma, what you get from the school. And then you earn your PT licensure by sitting for a national licensure exam. And then you have to basically sit for a state regulations exam as well. So those are kind of like the, the entry point um, differences between the different fields and, and kind of what defines them. In terms of their practical uh, outlines, the physical therapist has the broadest scope of practice. Um, partly because it has the highest level of education behind it. So we have a very wide scope of practice where we can prescribe strength conditioning exercises. We can put hands on patients and do manual therapy uh, movements. We can do in, in many states what we call dry needling, um, which is almost like a form of acupuncture, but significantly less Eastern approach, more Western approach. And so you have the opportunity and the ability to add all of these different um, modalities and avenues of treatment and basically the tools in your toolbox to help out any individual, that's, you have the most at the entry point from a physical therapy standpoint, if you're comparing to a strength and conditioning coach and then also to a personal trainer. So maybe that does a decent job of, of explaining it, but uh, it's there's so many things that you can do from any of those fields uh, that they can start to blend together very, very much so. Yeah, what you're saying was actually leading right into my next question, which I feel like is so difficult to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> cool. So the way that you describe the different licensure certifications makes so much sense. But to the general public, if someone has um, an issue like pain in their hip, or um, they don't know what's going on with their knee, but they have pain every time they walk down the stairs, or they did get a diagnosis from their doctor, and they were told that they needed to um, do something to help strengthen their back. How would they know outside of our traditional medical system who to seek out for help? A phenomenal question. Uh, if you know the answer, let me know. Because <laughs> we're, we're in this weird uh, place in the medical world right now where the, the general like orthopedic treatment options are, are very 
it's very regimented. It's very algorithmic. It's very standardized. And generally, you know, the, the kind of typical approach that will happen is you'll have pain in your hip. And so you do what your mom told you to do, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you go see the doctor, the primary care physician that you interact with generally doesn't know very much about orthopedics. They don't get a lot of schooling and training and they get very little, if any training on exercise. And so they're pretty much just going to kick you right back out to the next person. Most times you're going to end up at a PT. Um, there's a whole bunch of different things that we can get into on that standpoint, but usually it's like, okay, you, you kind of like move through the steps. And if let's say you're seeing a PT and you're not making any improvement, then the next step is going to be, well, now let's send you to an orthopedist. They're probably going to take some imaging, maybe an x-ray or an MRI, or maybe both. And then they're going to start talking about, well, if PT doesn't work, here are your other options. You can get an injection, you can get, you know, all of this stuff. And so what ends up happening is you just, and you're, you're kind of like, um, just being moved along through each of these individual steps. And what's really hard for patients, I think, is they don't have a ton of education on the differences between different doctors, between different orthopedists, between different PTs, between different strength and conditioning people, personal trainers. And, and so it's very, very challenging to understand who you should see for any given issue. And generally, what I recommend to people is you're going to want to have a relationship with somebody who is in this world, in our health and uh, medicine world, who you very, very deeply trust. And if you don't have that, it's going to be very difficult to get the kind of care that you deserve to, because the onus is really on the patient to advocate for themselves, which is a shame. It really is. And I think a lot of times people have terrible outcomes with it, or, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times, and I'm sure you hear this as well. Oh, I've, you know, I've tried PT, it hasn't worked for me. Or, oh, I've tried Pilates, that hasn't worked for me. Or, oh, I've tried chiropractic, and that hasn't worked for me either. And so what I always, you know, push back on people is like, well, did you go to the right PT? Right? Like the metaphor, I'm, I'm a huge metaphor guy. And one of the metaphors I really like to say is like, hey, you know, if you go to Taco Bell, do you think that's Mexican food? <laughs> Probably not, right? You want to, you want to go to the local taqueria and like, see what they have to offer because that's coming straight from the source. And so if you're seeing, you know, the Taco Bell version of a physical therapist or a chiropractor or a personal trainer, you're not going to get the real outcome and the kind of the dedicated attention and time and detail that goes into that. And as a result of that, your outcome probably won't be what you want it to be. So going all the way back to your question of, you know, how do you know who to see and what should you do with this? The first thing is it comes down to who do you trust? Um, the one thing that can work against us in our field is uh, generally people who go into physical therapy, we're personal, we're, we're very easy to talk to. We went into this field because we like interacting and socializing with patients and getting to know people and forming those relationships. And that's an okay thing. Um, it can work against us in the sense that people will always say, oh, I love my PT, they're great. Well, do you love them because of their personality or do you love them because they're actually doing the things that are making a difference in how you physically feel? And if you can blend both of those things, generally you're going to, you're really going to have like a dynamite provider and you want to use them um, to kind of quarterback your health, so to speak, and, and use them as a reference point to, Hey, this is going on with me. What do you think I should do? And um, kind of going like, again, like off on a, on a separate tangent, like, that's really been a big change in the way that we practice at, at Basecamp is identifying like, oh, hey, you know, you're, you're, we're doing all this stuff and we know it's the right stuff to be doing, but we're not getting the outcome that we're looking for. What's the next step? And instead of being like, hey, you need to go see an orthopedist, it's like, well, what are you eating? And how's your sleep? And what are your stress levels like? And what do you look like when you're sitting at your desk for work? And 
all of these different things. Because as you know, being a holistic practitioner, you kind of have to understand, okay, what are the different influences here? But then on, you know, kind of the other side of that, knowing, okay, well, we've tried a lot of things. We're not making progress. We need to get you to, to get some more information, right? And whether that's kicking you back to the doctor to get an MRI or, or whatever it may be, it's just, again, having somebody who uh, has a diverse set of tools available to them and understands when to use them and also understands when not to. So good luck trying to figure that out as, as an individual trying to navigate the medical system, but really it comes down to find somebody that you're willing to trust to kind of be almost like a coach for you or, and, and kind of like, um, like a reference point so that they can help illuminate what path is the right path for you to go down. That's a great response to a pretty difficult question. Um, and also I just want to go back to that Mexican food metaphor because I'm a huge fan of Mexican food and mole is one of the more complex things you can make. And it is actually, it's a perfect metaphor for what we do holistically as health practitioners. It's like, you have, everyone likes their own certain flavor, right? And there's so many different seasonings and spices that go into the mole or the, the care that you get. So there's a combination of, you know, is it too spicy for you or not? And is it the flavor you're actually looking for that's going to work for you? Mm -hmm. um, and so you also hit on the head too, like that you and I both tend to be pretty holistic in the way that we practice. Not everyone is regardless of your title. Um, or the certifications and licensures that you might hold. So that brings up a really good point as well. I, I want to throw in a little plug. I think it's important to work with somebody who has a holistic approach, which is why I come back to you over and over again. <laughs> I appreciate that. And, and what I will tell you is like, I am very much a holistic person and a holistic practitioner. I do think that sometimes we can get a little bit carried away on the holistic side. And, and again, like this is the really hard tightrope to walk as a practitioner is, okay, I, you know, I do know that your sleep impacts the way that you experience pain. And I know that it impacts your inflammatory cycles and your cortisol levels and all of these other really, really important things. But also at the same time, tissue damage is tissue damage. And so kind of knowing, hey, where are we at? When is it time to pull out some of these more, uh, or let's say less traditional modalities and understanding that. And again, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's kind of like, again, it comes back to this, this, chef or cook metaphor of you want the person who's cooked a lot of different cuisines and has chosen that this is the one that they really want to specialize in because they can bring so many lessons that they've learned from all of these other cuisines to this individual recipe rather than just saying hey this is the recipe this is how we make it and if you like it you like it and if you don't you don't right right and i specialize in mexican food if you want italian i can refer you to somebody awesome for that you got it you got it <laughs> awesome so Going back to kind of blending different modalities, I've noticed that a lot of PT, I shouldn't say a lot of PTs, some PTs are now trained in Pilates as well. And there seems to be some crossover and you would kind of hit that topic as far as PTs have a, because they have such a high education, mm -hmm. um, they are able to practice a lot of different modalities. I've been kind of surprised that there have been a number of PTs that I follow that have that really high education that then go through the whole process to become certified Pilates teachers. Um, and I would imagine that's also true for yoga and for mobility training. Do you have any insight on that or any opinions about how that can benefit other people or, or not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I, I, the way I generally view it is 
having more tools in the toolbox allows you to understand what time is appropriate for what tool. And so the way I generally, and this, this kind of goes back onto you asking me, like, how do I look at things holistically and like kind of what's my treatment philosophy and my approach. And the way that I generally break things down is it's, to me, it's very hierarchical. And, and really what I mean by that is like, we have what we call passive range of motion, which essentially means like we as a scientific community have all agreed that your shoulder should be able to move a certain degree of, or sorry, a certain amount of degrees in any given direction. We have standardized numbers for all of these things. What I look for on day one is, can I, me, not you, the patient, but me, the PT, take that shoulder and move it through the full range of motion? If I can't, then that's stop. Stop point number one. We cannot move on to number two. Number two is, can you, yourself as the patient, now move yourself around? And the thought process behind being, okay, well, I need to be able to do it before you can is, I'm eliminating all of the different patterns that you've you know, developed over the years of compensatory strategies and, and how you execute any given task. And then if I know that you can do that, then I need to know, okay, well, now if I add, let's say a little bit more skill to it, can you achieve that, right? And then the fourth thing being, can you do that when the, the environment is very chaotic and very complex and very random, like something along the lines of sports, right? If you're playing uh, football, you have no idea what's going to happen in any given moment. You need to be able to adapt and react and express all of those other qualities that we've already talked about. And back to my metaphors, the way I like to describe that is, you know, step one is, do you have all 26 letters in the alphabet? If you have all 26 letters, then it's a pretty good chance you're going to be able to learn how to spell all the words you need to know how to spell. And that's kind of step two is, can you put all those letters into words? And then we move up to step three. Can you turn those words into sentences? And then, you know, the last step to me is, can you make poetry? And if you don't have, let's say, like a vowel, like a letter, uh, your poetry is probably going to be really crappy, even though you can still try and make it, right? So that's kind of my, my thought process behind all of that. Now, going back to your question of like blending these different um, fields of Pilates and physical therapy or yoga and physical therapy or Pilates and strength and conditioning, and it's, I think there's a lot of merit to a lot of places doing this, but... I do think that what starts to happen is you can start to get diluted and you can start to lose some of the foundational principles. And we try and let's say, I, I think in like the group fitness realm, um, I'm a huge support. I'll kind of use this as my disclaimer. I'm a huge supporter of anything that gets anybody off their ass and moving like that bar none. I will take that over not moving any day of the week. That being said, if you're doing something and, and let's say you're trying to get to the point of, of putting paragraphs together, but you're missing letters, we got an issue. And it's it's going to start showing itself and you're going to start seeing these mistakes coming through. And they might be something like, oh, you know, my knee hurts. And maybe it's, uh, oh, my you know, my hips starting to hurt and my back's getting really tight. Every time I go to this yoga class or every time I go trail running or every time I go, you know, do one of these, these boot camps or something like that. And so that's where it comes down to knowing that whoever the person is, has the background to at least know where you're at in that spectrum. And if they don't, then being able to send you somewhere else. I think one of the hardest things as a business owner, and luckily like our, our clinic is now at a place where we have an abundance of patients, we're doing really well. And that allows us to be, let's say we can focus, we can re continue to refocus on being ethically and morally sound. I think what can happen a lot of times with small businesses is you get very desperate to have revenue coming in. And so as a result of that, you do whatever is getting people in the door, you just keep doing that, right? Like that's 
That's kind of like one of the golden rules of business. If it's working, don't break it. Just keep doing what's working. The problem with that is if you're doing something that's working and people are showing up in droves, but scientifically it's not sound or you're not screening out these kind of like lower levels of movement quality, you're going to start having people end up in my office because they're hurt, right? Or they can't continue to do the thing that they're really excited and fired up to do. And, and I think like coming back to, again, trying to actually give you like a concise answer to the question that you asked me, um, it's, it's about understanding like, does this person work with people like me? Do they have experience with people like me? And if you're a runner, I would seek out people who know how to work with runners. And if you're a Pilates, uh, somebody who wants to basically go into Pilates, find somebody who is very well educated in that field and make sure that those people have the humility to know when to send you elsewhere. Like I, I was literally on the phone with my brother before this and he's had some issues himself. And I've had numerous talks with him of, hey, if, if you're doing something and you're doing it and you're being consistent with it and it's not getting you the outcome that you want, it's time to start examining other things because we've tried that route. And there's no shame in saying, okay, that route didn't work. I wish that I could tell you that every person who comes to our office, we could fix, but there's plenty of times that we can't. And that's why I have all of these other providers that I, I know and trust and know when to say, oh, okay, like this is a letter problem, but we can't figure out why it's going on. Here's this chiropractor that I really know and trust. Or, hey, you have this XYZ movement thing going on. Like, here's this personal trainer that I know is, is lights out. And I think he's going to be able to help you solve that problem. And so it's it's kind of like building that network of understanding um, how to have people interact with each other, but even more so that everybody who's within that network has the same framework of looking at things because it makes it very easy for us to communicate about any given individual and also uh, know when each other can be very helpful in that process. That's that's a super helpful answer. Um, and you also mentioned running. Um, and I know you're an avid trail runner and mm-hmm. you know I know that runners generally like to work with other runners just as anyone wants the person that they're working with, especially when they're working with their body to understand their sport and what they're asking their body to do. So shifting slightly away from physical therapy and focusing on running, um, I think it was like the first time you and I met, we started talking about running footwear and you're talking about ultras. And then we started talking about toe spreaders and this was a while back. So I don't know if any of your feelings um, or education around this has changed at all, but as a PT and an avid trail runner, do you feel really strongly about footwear, any t- particular type of running shoes, minimal shoes or not? And tell us what the deal is about toe spreaders. Ah, yes. Well, uh, you can't see this if you're watching the video because my I'm not flexible enough to put my feet <laughs> on the screen, but I am wearing toe socks. So a disclaimer that I am one of those weird people. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, what I'll tell you is like, there's there's kind of like these, fads that come about in in the health and fitness world and maybe it's like keto diet or maybe it's being vegan or maybe it's this or maybe it's that it, it you kind of have like this swinging back and forth of the pendulum and for a long time uh what's funny is it's it comes in cycles and so there's a long time where it was like really about having very cushioned shoes and then we kind of made this huge switch to hey we should go more minimalist every and you start seeing people run with like the five finger shoes and all of those kinds of things. And then you'd start seeing now more people wearing hokas. And these are like, you know, save your joints and get all the densest foam possible and, and all of this stuff. Generally, my feeling is it's it's very individualized. And I think like when we tend to see things like this, where it's like, 
oh, you know, this is the fad and then this is the fad and then this is the fad. It's generally because there's no one thing, right? Like if, if that one fad was the solution, like it would be the solution and it would continue on forever. Like you don't see a ton of weird new tires coming out. They all get kind of figured out hey, this is what tires should look like on cars. And maybe we make them a little bit different for the snow or maybe a little bit different for the road, but we haven't really figured out footwear yet. And so generally what I would say from a foundational level, coming back to this, can your feet move in all of the ways that your feet are supposed to? Can your big toe bend back 60 to 90 degrees? Can your other toes bend back 40 to 70 degrees? Can you spread your toes apart from each other? Can you squeeze them? If you can't do these things, this is kind of like the foundational, right? These are the letters and the, and the words that you're putting together. You could then go out and try and get a shoe that maybe masks some of those things. And maybe that's a really good idea for people. But I'll tell you, you know, I'll answer your question without answering your question, which is to say, when I assess runners and when we watch them run, if I watch somebody and they're in, let's say, something like a Hoka or a more supportive shoe, uh, and you start seeing like their foot is moving around a lot and they have a lot of instability in that foot the second that their foot's on the ground, that's a clue to me to say, hey, this is this is not a great outcome. Right? We want a better outcome than this. We want to feel really stable on the ground while still having the ability to adapt to, especially if you're a trail runner, varied surfaces. So maybe for that person, having a maybe we keep it in a hoka, but we go just a smaller profile shoe so they can better sense the ground. Or conversely, like let's say you have somebody who has, uh, sometimes we call them a Morton's neuroma, which is basically a, a bundle of uh, connective tissue that forms around a nerve in the center. And you can kind of see this on video, but think between basically your middle and your ring toe, you'll get this like fibrous material that forms around the nerve that can cause a ton of pain. Well, guess what feels really good on that? More cushion. So those people might do a little bit better in a higher profile shoe. What I will generally say, and, and kind of like coming back to everything, is regardless of the shoe that you're wearing, you should have the ability to just both spread your toes, to squeeze them, to move your toes, relatively individualized of each other. Um, we have the same number or almost the exact same number of muscles in our feet as we have in our hands, which means we should, in theory, have similar dexterity. And anybody who's listening to this, I encourage you to try and move your big toe separate from your other four toes. It's going to be very hard to do but you could do that very easily with your thumbs. So having the ability to express that movement from, from the feet is one of the ways to ensure healthy feet, healthy ankles, healthy knees um, for a very long time. And coming back to the toe spreader thing, uh, in the same way that like you see everybody with like these posture braces these days to encourage them to sit up nice and tall and have their shoulder blades back. Well, people just got tired of hearing people say that to them. And so they figured out, well, how can I do this in a way that I don't have to really think that hard? Toe spreaders are a way to do that. They're a way to kind of like, hey, let's bring you some awareness of the fact that your toes can actually spread apart from each other. And let's, you know, you don't have to go out and spend $60 on this stuff. You can just take a paper towel and roll it up and stick it in between your toes. Like any of the, the women out there who have ever painted their toenails doing that at the end of the day can be something that feels really good for people. And if you have plantar fasciitis or, you know, some kind of foot related disorder or pain that in itself might be enough to just kind of like help you break that cycle and start changing the way that your foot can move and the way that your brain perceives that your foot can move. So maybe I, I did a decent job of answering that question, but um, suffice to say that 
you want to work with somebody who has a good understanding of, of the differences between feet and can kind of put you in the right shoe uh, in the same way that you want, you know, the PT or the, the chiropractor, whoever it is that you see to have a lot of different tools available to them. You don't want to just go to somebody who's like, I put everybody in barefoot shoes. And just because I myself tend to wear zero drop, more minimal style shoes and run in, in things like an ultra, um, I've had to switch that up in the past, even though like theoretically, I, I fully understand and know why I should be able to use them. When I was training for a really, really um, technical trail that was very rocky, my minimal shoes just didn't cut it. And so I needed something that had a little bit more profile in them because it was just ripping my feet apart. Uh, and maybe there's some like really hardcore barefoot people out there who are like, you're just soft. That's just your feet getting stronger. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things where you have to take in the information from your body and be able to incorporate that into the decisions that you're making. Um, instead of just, you know, having this stubborn approach of like, well, this is like the best thing, right? So I just have to keep doing this until it works. As you're talking, I just feel myself spreading my toes further and further apart from each other. And I love what you said about how easy it is for us to move our thumbs individual from the rest of our fingers and how challenging it can be to move our big toes um, without moving our little toes. Uh, it's something that we practice actually fairly regularly in the Pilates classes that I teach. And it's so funny because most of the people that I work with, they will do core work all day long and they love it. But then we get to working with the feet and they're like, no, no, we can't do two minutes. No, it's horrible. And it's because we just don't practice it the way we practice moving throughout the rest of our body. Yet we spend so much time on our feet. I think it's so sad that we neglect them so much. So Thank you for addressing the feet and, and also that it is different for each individual, right? And listening to your body to make choices and working with individuals who know a lot about feet is really important. Um, I'm going to take it to a totally different topic mm -hmm. away from the feet up into the lungs. You are the first physical therapist who I ever worked with who talked about the importance of breath and how breath affects movement and how movement affects breath which I found fascinating because it was actually the first thing I learned when I studied Pilates. We also talk about it a lot in yoga and in those mindful movement modalities, the breath is like the baseline. We don't really learn anything until we learn how to breathe properly. Unfortunately, that's not always taught. Like you said, not everyone teaches all the different foundational principles. Um, but I have never heard a physical therapist, at least that I've worked with talk about the breath. And the more that I have studied, the more it comes up. And now there's so much more research that supports how important that is. So will you share a little bit about how you found that, that important link? And then also, this is a big ask, but what would you tell people to do to help them breathe better and therefore move better? Hmm. That, yeah. That <laughs> is, yeah, no, but I like it. Uh, and it's, it's fun to talk about this kind of stuff because like you said, I, What's, what's really funny is um, when I came out of PT school, and it hasn't been that long, I've, I've now been uh, practicing for about six years or six and a half, and I came into a typical outpatient clinic and I started talking about, uh, hey, breathing mechanics and why does this matter, especially if you're a throwing athlete or if you're trying to lift more weight or you're trying to run, why do these things matter? And I had PTs who had been practicing for 15, 20, 25 years looking at me like I had grown a second head. Because it, it was just something that wasn't exposed. And what's really cool is now, just six and a half years later, there's so many PTs that I talk to who have an understanding of this and it's on their radar. And maybe they don't, you know, they haven't spent years and years trying to study this stuff, 
but it's just, it's becoming a little bit more, um, I guess we can use the word mainstream in the sense that it's, it's more out there, right? It's more just in the, in the general public. Uh, and there's a lot of different reasons for that happening, but coming back to your question, like, how did I get into that in the first place? I, I wish that I could tell you that I'm just like this savant and I just had this realization that nobody else did. Uh, I'm not, I'm definitely not as smart as I sometimes like to think that I am. And, and as you heard me say earlier on, like I, I've really had the fortune of having some phenomenal mentors, uh, one of which who introduced me to this in the first place. And if anybody is really trying to go into like a deep dive or learn from one of the best out there, his name's Bill Hartman. He lives in Indiana. He is a absolutely phenomenal clinician. Sorry, he's probably one of the smartest human beings I've ever talked to in my life. He exposed me to breathing. And I remember coming into the clinic with him. And, you know, this is second year of PT school for me. I'm thinking I'm hot shit. I know a lot of stuff. I know how, you know, and, and I watched him, but I can't ever forget this. It was the first patient I'd ever seen him treat. It was an NBA player. And this guy came in and, you know, we're, we're moving him around on the table and he's coming back to these, these letters. He's missing a lot of letters of his alphabet, which means he can't express a lot of range of motion from his joints, which is generally a bad sign. And so I'm in my head, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do like a joint mobilization. We're going to do the stretching technique, or we're going to do, you know, cupping or whatever it might be. And I just remember Bill showed this guy how to do this very, very simple breathing exercise. And I'm like, it was so simple that, you know, this is my day one. I'm really excited. I was like almost falling asleep. <laughs> and, and I remember shortly after him doing this, within like a minute after him doing this exercise, watching the way that this guy moved, he gained like 75% of his range of motion back with one exercise. And that's in my head, I'm sitting there like, what the hell just happened? Because I, you know, I watched everything. He didn't touch his shoulder, but his shoulder's moving differently. He didn't touch his hips, but his hips are moving. Like I just, it doesn't make any sense. And so basically I just spent the next two years of my life learning under Bill and some of his disciples and, and starting to like integrate it into my own practice and treating patients with it. And it kind of became the thing I got known for early on in my practice is like, Hey, there's a weird guy who does all the breathing stuff. You should maybe go see him, which is, Hey, like, you know, I, I'm happy to wear that. Uh, but I, I would say the thing that tends to get neglected in the same way that we talk about the feet and hey, you, you can't, move your thumbs or your big toes separately from your other toes. That's something you should be able to do, right? Your, your rib cage is a, basically a cylinder in the sense that it goes 360 degrees around you. And so much of breathing in the mainstream is, you know, you need to breathe into your belly and you need to do this and you can't, whatever you do, don't chest breathe, don't neck breathe. It's going to kill you. You're going to have high cortisol levels. All these different things are going to come from it. And generally what it comes back to is like, there's beauty in the simplicity of it. It's shaped in 360 degrees. It should be able to expand in 360 degrees. And for people who have never felt this before, something that uh, if you've ever heard of Peter Atia, he's a really famous podcaster. He's got a ton of great stuff out there. Um, he talks about, you know, if you lay on the ground and you just put a towel under your back and you're breathing, you should be able to feel yourself pressing into that towel. Or if you put it behind your chair when you're sitting. In the same way that we talk about, hey, you should be able to feel air coming into your stomach. You should also be able to feel air coming into your upper chest and into the sides of your ribcage. And if you're not doing that, then what's happening is you're only pushing in one direction. And that just means, hey, you're going to start losing some of the other stuff. Our brain is very smart. It's very energy hungry. It does not want to waste precious resources trying to remember, oh, yeah, I remember how to breathe into like the left side of my chest. That's perfect. I know how to do that. It's just like, hey, we can go over there. We're going to go over to that right side all day long, and we're just going to do that. So just 
again, like coming back to, you know, I, I always, I love and hate doing podcasts like this because like you ask questions and I know like as a listener of podcasts, it's like, I just want the information. Tell me, tell me what I need to know. And I'm, you know, the, the, it depends guy who's giving you all the nuance, but generally what I would say is for anybody, any joint, any part of your body at any given time should be able to move in its full expression of its range of motion. And you can easily look this stuff up. If you literally just type in, you know, shoulder range of motion, you will get all the normative values and get tests and YouTube and all that stuff that can teach you how much you're supposed to be able to move. Um, but coming back to the breathing thing, generally you should be able to breathe into all of the different parts of your rib cage and you can get more nuanced and say, you should be able to direct it into specific areas, right? That's it's kind of that higher level that we sometimes look for. Um, but it is, it's a key to a lot of different movement, uh, related dysfunction that we'll see from people where hey, their shoulder can't move a full way or their hip can't move a full way. If we can just get them moving a little bit, excuse me, better through their rib cage, all of a sudden you'll see these things kind of clear up and, you know, it's this age old thing of everything's connected and there's a lot of truth to that. There's also a lot of just like, you know, virtue signaling and people saying that of just saying like, oh yeah, I'm holistic. I know that everything's connected. If you understand the anatomy of it, then you can understand how all these other pieces kind of fit together. Um, but in general, I would say if you are having any kind of what I would consider like a pressure related disorder, meaning you have a really hard time sitting for any period of time you have, uh, for, for male and female, uh, if you have any pelvic floor related dysfunction, something like leakage or something like the, uh, what we would call incontinence. And this goes for like my high performance community. If you're jumping and you're having some leakage, that is a pressure management issue. Generally pressure management comes back to how well can you manage the pressure inside of your ribs and also inside of your abdomen. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, I know it's not just like, Hey, you should belly breathe or like you should nose breathe or you should be able to do this. Um, one more kind of like caveat onto that. And I say this because every time I tell runners this, they again, look at me like I'm crazy. Generally when you're running, unless you are exerting yourself at a very, very hard level. And I'm talking like you're going into like heart rate above one sixties. Uh, you should be able to breathe through your nose. I you going to say Yes. So, and, and the reason being, um, there's a there's a ton of stuff, and there's a book out there called Breath. And there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And again, take everything with a grain of salt because that guy has to sell books, and so some of it has to be sensationalized. But what I will say is, like, if you're breathing through your nose, there's a lot of different things that happen compared to breathing through your mouth. If you are a runner and you just want to become faster at running, well, as you know, or if you have any kind of semblance of this, you want your heart rate lower when you're running at any given effort, that's generally going to yield a better performance outcome. If you can adapt yourself to be able to breathe through your nose while you're running, it means that A, you're becoming more efficient in using oxygen. And B, when you breathe through your nose, you're going to release more nitric oxide into your bloodstream, which means that your blood vessels are going to get bigger. They're going to open more, which means you can get more blood through them, which means your heart rate doesn't have to be as high. That is the direct link between performance and this. Now, don't take this out of context and think, oh, well, if I just breathe through my nose, like I'm going to run way faster. Uh, the first time you do it, you're going to feel like you're going to die. And then gradually you'll start to adapt to it over time. And you will start noticing that your heart rate comes down at any given pace. And that's a huge benefit to people. Um, and for people who are like chronically congested or chronically have allergies or any of these kinds of things, breathing through your nose, you have all of these hairs inside of your nose that you don't have in your mouth. 
And that helps filter things out, which again, just has a little bit better effect on your body um, in a number of different ways. And this is again, kind of like that holistic piece of how all of these pieces interact with each other. Uh, and again, I'm just going off on a tangent with this stuff, but the, I would generally say like talking about breathing, you should mostly be able to breathe through your nose, save for when you are working very, very hard, then you should 100% be able to breathe through your mouth and go for it. Um, and then most of the time you should be able to breathe into all 360 degrees of your rib cage. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm finding myself reflecting on all the things I tell my clients. Like if it's hard for you to do the footwork, that's really what you got to work on. And now I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to nose breathe when I run. Oh, yuck. <laughs> but you absolutely are right. It is really important. And I, I mean, I've re researched and, and tons of reading on the benefits of nose breathing and still I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. But, <laughs> but now that we've had this conversation, I can no longer ignore the benefits. So tomorrow on my trail run, you, I will be thinking of you and working on my nose breathing. Hopefully I don't pass out. <laughs> you will be okay. Worst comes worse, you will just start breathing through your mouth. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So what you would say to people just to summarize is work on nose breathing. And then also I call it three-dimensional breathing, but basically breathing into the 360 degrees, the barrel of the rib cage in order to get full inhalation and exhalation and being able to move the breath into different parts of the body, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I would say those are really big things to focus on. Also, since we're talking about breathing, um, one of the things to consider here is if you've ever been told at night that you snore, generally this means that you have a very hard time being able to move air through your nose. And so you'll resort to breathing through your mouth. What we know about snoring, what we know about mouth breathing with sleep is that it's going to prevent you from getting into deeper stages of sleep. If you're one of those people that always wakes up tired or you have a hard time getting going in the morning, or you find that it's really hard for you to recover after harder efforts, sleep is one of those really, really big pillars to focus on. And this sounds completely ridiculous, but I will say it. Uh, something that can be really helpful for people who are experiencing that is to first work on just nose breathing throughout the day. Try like if you ever catch yourself breathing through your mouth while you're working and it's not like you're working very hard, like you're not sweating actively, you should probably be able to just close your mouth and breathe through your nose. If that's still having an issue, obviously see an ENT or someone along those lines who can help you out with that stuff. But one of the things that can be really helpful, and it sounds crazy, is you can uh, buy strips that either go over your nose or you can buy strips that you can put over your mouth and tape over your mouth so that you don't have the capacity to breathe through your mouth while you're sleeping. And the amount of times I've talked to people and, and had them do this and they come back and they're like, it made a world of a difference uh, is it's kind of shocking to me. But it's again, it's one of those things that there's all of these different tools and, and like hearing you talk about uh, like spreading your toes and working on this, and working on that. What I'll generally tell people is like, if you take anything out of this conversation, take this, pick one thing, pick one thing and focus on that one thing. Because what will happen is if you try and focus on all of these different things, you won't be able to accomplish any of them. And then you'll basically get defeated by having too many things. And it's like, oh, you know, like I think what happens these days is like we're all into optimization. And so all of us know that, you know, when we wake up in the morning, we should probably get 15 to 20 minutes of sunlight in our eyes. We should definitely meditate for at least 15 to 20 minutes. We should journal. We should have a gratitude practice. We should make some special kind of coffee that's made from mushrooms. And do all this stuff. And then like sometime by three o'clock in the afternoon, we can actually start our day. And I think, again, as a result of that, it's like you got to find that one thing for you that that is like the, the key to the other things. And if it's nose breathing for you, or if it's working on toe spacing or if it's working on rib cage breathing or if it's 
just trying to get up and move 20 minutes a day, like whatever that thing is, commit to that thing. And then you'll start to see the snowball effect of those habits over time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like trying so hard not to just die laughing because I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with clients about, oh my gosh, taking care of my body has become a full-time job. I just retired and now I have a full-time job of taking care of every joint in my body and the breathing and the this and the that. And you got to get cardio and strength training and this. And it's like, yeah, I try to do it too while I'm working and it's hard (laughs) and I'm in the industry. (laughs) You got it. They can feel very overwhelming. So last question for you. Mm -hmm. If you are limited on time, like most of us are, and quite frankly, that we only get 24 hours in the day and life is short. So we are all limited on time. You just said, focus on one thing. How do you choose what it's going to be? You know, I was thinking about this a lot since you you told me that you were going to ask me this question and it's a really hard question to answer um i think generally what i would say is for the vast majority of people i would say do the thing that you enjoy doing the most and if that means like if if you're a runner and you're just like i just know that when i run like i am such a better human being go run do that like i don't i don't really care uh now if you're a runner and like you're not willing to give that up but you're running into all these other issues, like then we're going to have to have a conversation of all the supplemental work you might have to do to try and maintain that. Um, But for myself, generally it comes down to what, what's the thing that I haven't done recently or what's, what's my goal, right? Like what's the thing that I'm trying to achieve and then kind of focusing on that. Um, Excuse me. Generally what I would say for me is it's going to be either hiking uh, or if I'm in a place that doesn't have access to nice trails, which sometimes happen once when you travel, then it's most likely going to be doing some kind of strength training and, and like some kind of whole body strength training. And the reason I say that is like hiking for me, like being outdoors for me is like, it's the thing. It's like the thing that I love most. And so if I can get outside and do that, I'm always going to do that. And there's tons of different reasons for that. But like the simple answer at the end of the day is like, I just love it. It's it's something I really enjoy doing. Um, I also really love doing some kind of strength related training and, and like moving my body against resistance. So if I have access to that, then I'm probably going to do that if I don't have access to the outdoors or if I'm just like shot, like I don't have time to to get to and from a trailhead or something along those lines. I love that answer. Do what you love. Do what and you also love. make sure you do the things that let you continue doing what you love, right? <laughs> 100%. That's why I come see you so that I can continue doing what I love, which is trail running too. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. I already feel like I need to have you back another time because there's so we're going to have like a whole episode just on the breath alone. Um, and as always, whenever we talk, I always just want to keep it going because you are such a fascinating person to talk with. Thank you for taking the time away from base camp PT to have this conversation. I know that you're super busy as a business owner, as a very successful PT. And um, I know that your business is growing because you've really been able to show your clients results or your patients results. If there are people who want to contact you, what is the best way to reach you? And we'll also make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, that honestly, the easiest place to to reach me directly uh, is if you just go to our website, it's petalumaphysicaltherapy.com. We're based out of Petaluma. Um, for anybody who's listening from afar and you can just like, you'll get prompted to either set up a call with us or shoot us a message. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me directly. Uh, you can also look us up on Facebook and Instagram, Basecamp Physical Therapy. Just look those up. It should pop up. 
that being said, I'm not super social or sorry, not super active on the socials. I am a very social person, uh, not super active on our social media accounts. So if you're trying to get our direct attention, the easiest way to do it is to go through our website. Great. Thank you so much for having this time together. And um, I hope to have you back on the show again. Thank you. And thank you for for doing this. I think it's um, it's really cool to have people who a, are trying to learn more about everything that's happening in this space, but also then trying to share that with the general public. And like, it's, it's like, it ties back into one of my greater missions, which is just like, how do we get everybody access to better healthcare? And you doing this work allows people to have that. So thank you for inviting me on this podcast and also for doing all of the hard stuff that goes on behind the scenes to make something like this work. Thanks for recognizing that. I think we also both share a love for education and educating people about how to take good care of themselves. So we're in it together. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. That wraps up this episode of Mindful Movement with Naya. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we'd appreciate your support through Buy Me a Coffee. Link in show notes. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. It takes less than a minute and it really helps us out. If you'd like more Mindful Movement resources, check out our website, at nayapilates.com.